It is good to be back in our study of Titus. So turn in uh, your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're now moving to a new chapter in in, uh, the letter of Paul to Titus, written around the year AD 64, to Paul, to his son in the faith, Titus, his apostolic delegate, the one uh, with whom he entrusted the task of setting in order what still remained to be done there in the mission on the island of Crete. We don't know how many churches were planted, but we do know there were a number of churches that were planted as a result of the Apostle Paul's ministry there alongside uh, Titus as, they, as they, they brought the good news of the gospel to that island in the Mediterranean. And for some reason, Paul could not stay longer And so he left Titus with the responsibility of continuing the work of strengthening the souls of those new converts as Paul himself went on to other things related to the task that the Lord had given him. Now as we come to chapter 2, we do begin a, a new section in this letter, and I'll get to that in just a moment, but for the next several sessions that we have in this letter, the title of, of the sermons that will be studying will be countercultural Christianity. And we're going to see this actually throughout all of Titus chapter 2, but we'll see this specifically in verses 1 to 10 when the Apostle Paul provides some very, very specific practical instruction as to life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, not only was that instruction countercultural to the Cretan norms of the day, but as we get into this very, very practical and detailed instruction, we're going to find that it remains to this day very countercultural. Well, to set the tone, I want to make some comments first off on the structure and the transition that happens here in chapter 2, verse 1. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you see that first phrase, that is, is there in the text, but as for you. Now that sets in motion here a, a new section. It's emphatic as Paul not only begins with the contrasting conjunction, but the pronoun you, even in the original, is, is intended to be emphatic. As Paul sets Titus and his responsibilities and what he is to teach, in antithesis with what Paul has taught in verses 10 to 16 on the false teachers. And so after Paul has described all the damaging effects of false teaching and that it upsets whole households, teaching Jewish myths and the commandments of men, after Paul has spent some significant time dealing with that problem there on the island of Crete in those new congregations, Paul now transitioned and says, okay, now Titus, now I want to give you the instruction that is lacking in those false teachers. The first emphasis that Paul is going to make to Titus occurs in chapter 2, like I said, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way really to the end of verse 15, to the end of the chapter, and Then he'll transition and make another emphasis in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. But what we want to do in the next several is focus on this second chapter. And I want you to note, just for a moment, how Paul brackets this information. 
this instruction that he gives to Titus. Notice verse 1, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then look to, to, to verse 15 in the same chapter, and you'll notice the second bookend to this particular section where Paul says this in verse 15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, what is found between verses 1 to 15, and more specifically, verses, between verse 1 to 10, verses 11 to 14, is, a, is an appendage that Paul gives to some instruction here. But what we find in verses 1 to 10 is what we can call a household code. The Apostle Paul reaches into a, a common uh, kind of, of, of uh, style of addressing instructions regarding relationships, particularly in the home, something entitled a household code. Paul adapts that. He takes that same kind of popular structure, but he's going to use it, as we'll see, not in the same way that was used in the, in the day by the philosophers and and there certainly was a rich heritage with these household codes among the philosophers, the Apostle Paul is going to take the structure, the form, but he is going to put in a very distinct message that is countercultural to what the philosophers of his day would teach regarding a household code. As you are going to see, Paul is going to give instructions to older men. He is going to give instructions to older women, and then he's going to give instructions regarding younger women, and then younger men, and then he's going to give instruction to slaves. All of these were considered to be part of the typical household in that day. But as I said, Paul is not just going to mimic what was given among the ethicists of the day he is going to fill it with, as he calls it, sound doctrine. Now, regarding these household codes that we find in, in Scripture and that we find in, uh, in extra-biblical sources, there would be this effort on the part of, whether it's Paul or Peter, in, in giving instruction as to how relationships were to work at the most everyday level, and that was in the home, The philosophers sought to do the same thing as well. The philosophers were interested in their own ethical instruction and bringing stability uh, to the society, and they recognized that if there is to be a, a kind of stability within society, it had to come down to these everyday relationships that were structured and ordered around the home. Let me give you an example of this from Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a very important work in the history of, of ethics and, and a social or political theory called politics, and he said this in part three of, of that work of, of the first book. He said this, quote, "...seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household management correspond to the persons who compose the household. And a complete household, he says, consists of slaves and freemen. 
Now, we should begin by examining everything in its fewest or simplest possible elements. And the first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We have therefore to consider what each of these three relations is and ought to be. And if you go and read further in that, you would find that Aristotle, on the basis of his own worldly wisdom, sought to provide instruction for how these different relationships ought to have functioned, how they should look within domestic life. He goes on to say this a little bit later in part 12 of that first book. He said this, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs, the rule over his children being a royal rule, over his wife being a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitted for command, more fitted for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature." You don't really need to remember any of that. I just wanted you to know that this was a topic of discussion in the Greco-Roman context of the day. And I bring it up because as we're going to get into Titus chapter 2, we're going to see that there are some very specific kinds of instruction that the Apostle Paul will give regarding relationships, specifically to the marriage relationship, that is countercultural to what we find today. And in light of that, there have been some today, some commentators, some theologians, who claim that what Paul was doing here in Titus chapter 2 was an effort to make sure that the new converts on the island of Crete would not become radical in the Christian faith, but instead would continue to pursue What were the norms of family life a la Aristotle? So there's a significant element of biblical scholarship who would say that, therefore, what, what Paul is doing here is not providing any universal instruction for relationships, especially as he talks about young women and their duties in the home and to their husband. Rather, instead, this is a very localized instruction, they call it an ad hoc letter, that was limited in its purpose, in its scope, in its, in its applicability to the Cretan context. And what Paul was simply trying to do in chapter 2 of Titus was to make sure that after these converts on the island of Crete had, had somewhat come out of that culture, the Cretan culture, and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they didn't get radical, but instead they would continue to follow these high ethical norms laid out by the Greek philosophers. But as we look at this letter, as I said already, this letter is not interested in maintaining what would be social or politically acceptable norms 
for the day. And for that, we look more specifically to this letter itself. Rather than getting caught up with Aristotle and all of the ethics that Aristotle sought to bring to Greco-Roman culture, we must look at what Paul is doing in this letter. And we find, more specifically, related to the near context of Titus, Paul's instruction for the Cretan believers to live explicitly counter-cultural as it related to the relationships in the home of the day. Go, for example, back to chapter 1. This is within the context. Here is the culture on the island of Crete. Paul says this. We looked at it already in chapter 1. He said this in verse 12. Of themselves, of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That is the inspired assessment of the cultural context on the island of Crete. And what we're going to see in chapter 2 as we begin in verse 2 and go all the way to verse 10 is a very different practical code for relationships. Paul was not at all afraid to call upon these new believers to live in a very different way than this Cretan culture. In fact, it's important to note, even more specifically, as we will see, that Paul connects the household code that he gives in these verses, not in any way to the standards of Greco-Roman ideal life. In verse 1, he connects what he's about to say about these domestic relationships to sound doctrine. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1, and he says this, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. We'll get into that in just a moment. But we need to understand this, that what Paul is about to say is not just something he's mimicking from the culture. He is directly connecting this to sound doctrine, that which is in accord with healthy doctrine, that which cultivates health spiritually. And we could even take that back all the way to the salutation where Paul himself, in very transcendent terms, describes his role with these words. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. That is what Paul is concerned about here. He couldn't care less about Aristotle. He couldn't care less about the ethics of the day. His concern is that the lives of these converts would measure up with God's God's own character. They would seek the standard that is not in the philosophers, but seek the standard which is God himself. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation of which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Again, notice the transcendent terminology there in 
in those opening verses. Paul saw his responsibilities in every word that he taught to convey faithfully the knowledge of God, the revelation that God had entrusted to him so that those who would be the recipients, including those on the island of Crete, would know what godliness looked like. Moreover, there's another important observation to make about the context of this teaching, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. But if you go to chapter 2, specifically verses 11 to 14, you find this, this very, very important statement about salvation. It's one of those really key moments uh, in Paul's writing where he summarizes the, 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 the nature of salvation, not just in, in terms of a kind of an eternal perspective, but in terms of its present day impact in life. And Paul connects this kind of living that he's going to describe in chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. He's going to connect it with the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 11 in providing the, 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 uh, the basis for this household code. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And we'll get to that definition of all men in in a few weeks' time, but notice what he then says in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The terms that Paul uses there, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, those are summaries of what he includes, what he instructs in his household code of verses 2 to chapter 10. Paul is indeed concerned about the Cretans and their testimony, but he is not concerned about their testimony before the watching world in terms of having them simply fulfill ideals according to human wisdom. He already pointed out the problem of that back in chapter 1 where he, 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 he uh, denounced the, the false teachers for living and teaching according to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Instead, Paul here is, is concerned about distinctions, about a testimony that arises from living counter-culturally. And that's what we're going to get into in these verses in chapter 2. They are some of the more disputed verses, as we'll see, in Paul's writing. Because again, as I said, it deals with some very touchy and sensitive issues related to husbands and wives and the issue of submission and leadership and so on and so forth. We're not going to get into that this morning, but we will in in future weeks. What we do want to get into this morning is the first section of verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read this section and then we'll get into verses 1, 2, and 3 this morning. Paul writes this as he now transitions to give Titus his instruction to pass on to the church. Titus, Paul says, As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, 
and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, to give a little overview of where we're going beyond even those verses all the way to the end of the chapter, let me give this outline again. We're not going to cover all of this this morning. It's going to take us several sermons to go through. This is a lot of practical instruction that Paul gives, and we want to take our time as we go through it to make sure that we define the terms carefully and understand Paul's intent in giving it. These are the whole points for the the, the whole uh, chapter, and uh, we'll just go through the first uh, three points this morning. But we'll begin with the necessity for the household expectations, the necessity for the expectations in verse 1, the expectations for elderly men in verse 2, and then this morning we'll also look at the expectations for elderly women in verse 3. But then beyond that, like I said, Paul is going to give expectations for young women. He's going to give expectations for young men. He's going to give expectations for slaves. He's going to make a statement on the basis uh, for these expectations. And then there will be another statement that closes this all in verse 15. But let's look at the first now. The first observation or the, the first point of our study in this chapter, the necessity of these expectations in verse 1. Paul says this, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. As I said already, the first phrase here is an emphatic distinction between what the false teachers were doing and what Paul is about to entrust to Titus. And although the word speak that's used there can sometimes include just the idea of, of, of speech or conversation, there's every reason to believe that Paul's use of this term refers or can be translated as teach or proclaim. That's the idea that Paul is, is, has here as he exhorts Titus to his responsibilities. And what's important to note there is that as Paul moves now into these very, very practical instructions... It's important to note that Paul begins with this exhortation to Titus that he must must teach these things. He must teach these things. He must speak them. And the idea is, is that these are behaviors, these are responsibilities on, on the different categories listed there that can be communicated and must be communicated in propositional terms. Sometimes we get this idea that, well, these things are better caught than taught, that really the idea is is that we should just model these things, and then the people in the churches will, will, will get it. They'll see it. And while we certainly must acknowledge the power of example, after all, the elders are to, to exemplify these things as leaders in the church, we must recognize that it doesn't begin with example. It actually begins with instruction. These very practical things must be taught. 
There must be teaching. There, there must be instruction that is given on these very, very practical issues. And may I even say this, especially in our day when there is such an emphasis placed on distinguishing the different categories and you have no right to speak into the lives of people in different categories, different communities. Paul shares none of that. He has no problem in addressing the very different categories of which he's not a part. He does believe that you can teach into those categories. And he says, you must teach, you must speak that which is fitting. That which is fitting, and this is a reference to to something which is in accordance with, something that measures up to a standard. And we saw that already if we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, in that salutation, Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness. We saw it back there already that in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul is making a distinct connection, though with a little bit of different terms there in 1 verse 1. He's making a connection between truth and practice. He's making a, 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 a connection between sound doctrine and concrete living. And he says, speak the things, these things which are fitting are the things that are part of this household code, that are fitting with sound doctrine. He calls this doctrine sound. We see, we've seen this word already back in verse 9 of chapter 1 and verse 13 of chapter 1. The, the designation or description sound, it literally means healthy. Paul is speaking of healthy doctrine. And even in that designation, we see that doctrine for Paul is not some kind of theoretical thing. Doctrine always has an impact in some way on on us. The truth is always practical in, in some way. And so Paul calls the truth, he calls the teaching which he has received from the Lord Jesus Christ as healthy. It has an impact on life. It brings it it brings health. And so he says to Titus here, Titus, you must teach, you must speak. These things, which I'm about to tell you, these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And just to pull out some some observations to make here so far as we look in the broader context, it's interesting to note that in light of all that Paul has just stated about the false teachers, he now says to Titus, now Titus, do your part. This is the best antidote to the false teaching you need to teach. You need to teach. The best antidote to frivolous and errant teaching is sound doctrine. It was Calvin who said that all trifles vanish away before solid teaching. That the way to to get rid of all the bad ideas is not to spend endless amounts of time focusing on those bad ideas and trying to dissect them and find their origins and so on and so forth. Certainly you have to do some of that. Paul did that in verses 10 to 16. But really the the best antidote is to start teaching truth. And that will deal with the impact that these false teachers have had. Moreover, a second observation to, to see here is Paul's connection between what we call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. 
orthodoxy being sound doctrine, orthopraxy being sound practice. And for Paul, that this isn't a, a, these aren't two worlds apart. These are interrelated. Sound doctrine comes first, and it will necessarily lead, if it is embraced, to sound practice. Now, what are the things fitting with this sound doctrine? Let's look at the first set of instructions here. It's given to elderly men. So the expectations of elderly men. The expectations of elderly men. Verse 2, he writes, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Now, the term older men here is a term that is only found here and in two other places in the New Testament. One in Luke 1 verse 18, referring to Zacharias, when he said to the angel, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, said to the angel that he is an old man and would not be able to conceive or he would not be able to produce a son, It's also found in Philemon 9, in that Paul, writing just a few years before he wrote to Titus, calls himself an old man as he writes to Philemon, uses this same term. So who were these older men? Well, it's important to note that this term is is not the term presbyteros, the term from which we get presbytery, or the term from which we get elders. We saw that back in 1 verse 5. Remember, Titus was to appoint elders, plural. This is a different term. It has the same root idea of elderliness or maturity, but the term that Paul uses here in verse 2 is a term that refers to rank and file elderly men. What age were they? Well, we don't really know precisely, but generally speaking, this would have been the age of men from about 50 or late 40s to the late 60s. We can call these the gray hairs. all right? This is that stage of life that has been universally recognized that when men start to get gray hair, they become an elderly man, generally speaking. And uh, I'm not going to say that about the women. We'll, we'll define it some other way. But for the men, I can say that. These are the gray-haired men. Paul begins with them, the rank-and-file elderly men in the congregation. What was their responsibility? Notice how Paul instructs Titus to train them. He says they are to be, number one, there's four of them here, number one, they are to be temperate. They are to be temperate. Originally, that term originally referred to moderation, in the consumption of alcohol, but over time it became, became expanded to describe the life of one who is not enslaved by the appetites or passions of life. One commentator put it this way, it was wise moderation in matters that sinful human beings frequently pursue to excess. Again, referring to the, the physical passions and appetites of life. Paul says that the elderly men in the congregation, those who follow Christ, are to be temperate. 
They are to have these gratifications, these appetites under control. Alexander Strzok, in in defining this term, says this. He says the term denotes self-control, balanced judgment, and freedom from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. It indicates the absence of any personal disorder that would distort a person's judgment or conduct. It describes a person who is stable, circumspect, self-restrained, and clear-headed. And Paul says to Titus, Titus, teach the elderly men that this is what they must be, temperate. They must have their those appetites that are so frequently given over to excess, they must have them under control. Secondly, the second of the four expectations is this. They must be dignified. And again, I want to emphasize, Paul is, is, is requiring this. Not This isn't referring to the elders. He's already dealt with the elders in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. He is referring to rank and file gray hairs in the church, the men. And he says they must be dignified. It describes that which is worthy of honor, that which invites respect. This term had a history of usage in describing that which was awe-inspiring, and so over time it was often associated with deity, that it was that which would be awe-inspiring. If it was connected With God, it would be awe-inspiring. It would invite respect. And Paul says, okay, if you're in this category, if you're late 40s to to the late 60s, you have that gray hair, this is what you must be. This is who you are to be. Thirdly, he uses the term sensible. Older men are to be sensible. Sensible. This term is very similar to the first one, temperate, but has more of an emphasis on the mind. If the term temperate emphasized appetites, the the appetites of the body, the passions of the body, this term has more of an emphasis on the mind, more of an emphasis on the thoughts of a man. And Paul says that the man must be sensible. He must have a control over the way that he thinks. As such, it is the opposite of foolishness, of fickleness, of impulsiveness, of rashness, all those things that the book of Proverbs denounces as foolish. This term is the antithesis. This is wisdom. The man who knows how to order his thoughts, how to make right judgments, how to draw right conclusions, how to properly evaluate situations, and how to make sure that that which he thinks is true and righteous and just and noble. In fact, this term, sensible, referring to right kind of thinking, is a term that we find frequently in the book of, or the letter of to Titus. It's found of elders. Elders need to be sensible, Titus 1.8. Elderly men, Titus 2.2. Young women, Titus 2.5. Young men, Titus 2.6. Over and over, Paul emphasizes this term more than others. These 
These different categories within the church are all to exhibit a proper control of one's reasoning faculties. And fourth, Paul says, the elderly men, the gray-haired, the rank-and-file men in the church of late 40s to up to late 60s are to be known for being sound. There's that term again. Again, referring to being healthy, free from defect, and particularly in these three areas. Paul says, in faith, referring to one's belief in God. In love, referring to one's service to others, and in perseverance. In other words, an endurance in the midst of trials. That men who are this age in the church are already to be exemplary in how they trust God, in how they serve others, and how they endure in the midst of trials and tribulations. And hopefully you can see here, this is that triad of Christian virtue that Paul so often talks about, of faith, hope, and love, the only difference being he uses the term endurance here, or perseverance here, instead of hope, but it's the same thing. The idea of a futuristic look at life that is is focused on what the Lord is going to do in Jesus Christ and the appearance of that, that Lord and that futuristic view, that hope, so impacts a man that he can make it through the temporary trials of the present day. That is what the older men are called to. Now, this is countercultural, isn't it? If you would pay attention at all to Hollywood, the typical picture of a gray-haired man is a grumpy old man. Grumpy old grandpas, right? That's the typical picture that is created in society. And in reality, that is part of the culture. Sadly, to their shame, many older men become what? Grumpy. They become irritable, angry, resentment, uh, resentful, bitter. I'm not looking at you, Dave. That's the typical portrait of an old man in today's society. And Paul instructs the church and says, "Uh uh-uh, not among the followers of Christ. Those who have that gray hair are to demonstrate the exact opposite. They are to show control of the body. They are to show a dignity that attracts respect. They are to show a control of their minds. They are to be healthy, robust in faith, in love, and in hope. That is the expectation. Proverbs speaks of a similar idea for old men. Proverbs 16 verse 31 says this, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Now that proverb is not speaking of all men universally. It's speaking of the ideal. It's speaking of the wise man. This is the way it ought to be. And let me put the challenge out to you, men. Go home, look in the mirror. Do you have gray hair? Maybe if you have no hair, then just look at your birth certificate, all right? (laughs) And understand this. 
you have the gray hair, if you have the age, that is to be your crown. That is to be your crown. And that means that as you live life, you must live consistently with that gray hair. Age is not an excuse for letting down the restraints, for letting your personality go, for just kind of coasting to the finish line. The exact opposite. Paul holds these elderly men up to the high standard. So elderly men, this is what is required of you even today. And if you're a young man... You might say, well, I'm off the hook. Well, we'll get to you yet. Trust me. (laughs) But this is what your life is to look like when you reach that stage. And if you're not already planning for that now, if you're not already working towards that as the standard and making it your ambition in Jesus Christ to say, when I get old, I am going to be a pleasant man who is robust in faith, hope, and love. I'm going to be that older man that is known for his self-control, that is known for his wise judgment, that is known for attracting respect, not demanding it. That is what Paul has in mind here. Just some implications then from this. Elderly men, are you growing in and known for clear-headedness and sobriety in the control of your appetites? Are you known for a lifestyle that evokes admiration and imitation? Are you known to command, to have command over your thoughts and a consistent distancing of yourself from that which is foolish? And are you known for having a healthy, robust trust in God, service to others, and endurance in the midst of trials? If you don't, the call to you is, to repent and to embrace this grace of God, which Paul has said has appeared, that is the enablement to achieve these things. Now let's look for a moment at the expectation for elderly women. Verse 3, Paul writes this, Elderly women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. The older woman, that phrase older woman, older women, plural, is only found here in the New Testament, but it corresponds to the phrase older men used already in verse 2, and it would relate to the same age, late 40s to the late 60s. Again, no comment on the hair. I will refrain from anything related to that. (laughs) And Paul says, notice this, Paul says, older women likewise, likewise. He's not creating any distinction to allow for exceptions for the women. Paul has high standards for the elderly women as well. They're not to be treated as if these things are unattainable to them or they're not held to the same standards. Not at all. Paul has just as high of a standard for morality and practical life for the women as he does for the men. And notice again four fundamental qualities. First of all, he says this, they must be reverent in their behavior. Now we we saw that with the men, they needed to be respectable. We saw that in in verse 2. 
they are to be dignified, and that term has some some overlap with religious elements, but this term here in verse 3, reverent, has definite uh, overlap into religious terminology. It, is, it, is, it speaks of that which is consistent with something that is sacred, consistent with something that is dedicated to God. And Paul begins with that here, saying older women must be, they are to be reverent in their behavior. Their behavior is to have the sacredness to it. You could put it this way, it is sublime in that it's, it's transcendent, it's profound. You look at it, it's, it's not earthly, it's not fleshly. It's consistent with, with, with deity, it's, it's consistent with God and, and His character. Moreover, Paul says they are not to be malicious gossips. And that term, malicious gossips, actually is one term in the original. It's the word diabolus. And most of the time, that term is translated as devil because that term so well describes what Satan does, right? He's called the devil. Why? He's the great accuser. He's the great slanderer of God's people. So in prohibiting what older women are, are to do, prohibiting what, or, or instructing what they are not to do, Paul says they're not to be devils. They're not to engage in what would be malicious slander. They're not to engage in, in gossip. They're not to in, engage in that which is, is unloving and unkind in their speech. And this would include all kinds of what we could call speech sins, sins of of the speech. I won't read it now, but James chapter 3, verses 8 to 12 describes some of this, how easy it is to make grand professions of the faith and yet allow our tongue to be engaged in all kinds of speech sins. And Paul says elderly women are not to, to engage in this. They are to be known as, as those who are free from this kind of this kind of talk. Thirdly, he says they are not to be enslaved to much wine. Now, we saw a similar term described back in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul describes the candidates for eldership in this way. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. There, in verse 7, it literally means one who's not dwelling long beside the wine. Here, the terminology is stronger. It has the idea of enslavement. And it was known in those days that women, both in the Jewish context as well as the Greco-Roman context, would be heavy drinkers. You couldn't avoid alcohol in those days due to the problems with water purity. And so... Women, especially the older ones, would, would imbibe much and become enslaved. And Paul says they are not to be enslaved to these kinds of, of things. And fourthly, they are to teach what is good. Paul seems to invent a term here to describe this fourth quality that is to characterize older women. And again, this is referring to all the older women in the church, not just some, but all. They are to be engaged in in what he calls good teaching, teaching the good. 
And you might say, well, what is that referring to? Because elsewhere, Paul says, I forbid a woman to teach in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2. So what is he referring to here? Well, he's referring to what then comes next in verses 4 and 5, how the older women are to take it upon themselves, all the older women, in inculcating in the next generation of women a similar kind of lifestyle. We're going to get into that. They are to encourage, notice verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women too, and Paul's going to fill it in with all kinds of characteristics there related to young women. But Paul is saying here, for the, the older women, this is to be your common, your common aim in life. You are, you are to be reverent. You're to have that aura about you that, that, that you're connected to God, that you are a God-fearer. You're not to be engaged in malicious speech. You're not to be enslaved to things such as wine. And you're to have as, as your ambition this this desire to, 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 to pass on this practical, this practical life, which is in accordance with sound doctrine to the younger generation that follows you. And so let's think of some implications here. And again, this is very countercultural in our day. Let's think of some implications for the elderly women. Elderly women. Are you growing in and known for these things? Number one, a pattern of conduct that is befitting of one who professes to fear God. Again, Paul takes it out of the realm of profession. He takes it out of the realm of the abstract, and he puts it into the realm of behavior, everyday life. Can you say that your behavior is befitting one who fears the Lord? Number two, Are you known for and are you growing in the mortification of speech sins? Gossip, slander, those kinds of things. In all of your relationships, in all of your conversations, Paul recognized this to be an issue and leaves it by the superintendence of the Spirit on the pages of Scripture so that it would remain a testimony from all generations. Are you mortifying speech sins. Number three, do you have a refusal to be mastered by any earthly substances like wine? And I would even add into that today things like drugs. This is becoming a problem, particularly in our age, where drugs are just rampant. And the question would be, are you mastering your own body, or are you being given over to some kind of substance in your older age? Something that would be dishonoring to the Lord. And then fourth, do you have a personal commitment to promote that which is morally good through your personal influence, particularly with younger women? Again, these must be the ambitions of your heart, if you are one who is sensitive to the instruction of Scripture, if you are serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ, and if the grace of God has already made its impact in your life, these things must be a a concern to you. Well, we're going to continue this after the 
the Christmas break and look far, further into Paul's instructions. But let's pray now that the Lord would make these things true of the elderly saints among us and for those who are not so elderly yet, that the Lord would make these our long-term goals. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the practicality of your word that though it brings to us such lofty truths that are difficult for our minds even to fathom, at the same time it speaks so practically to the most concrete everyday issues of life. I pray for our elderly saints in commissioned, both the men and the women, that these two verses would have an impact, that they would be a standard by which they would measure their lives regularly, that you would give them the grace and the empowerment they need to grow in these things, to be examples to the, the rest of the church about what it really means to grow old in Christ, to grow mature, to grow in sanctification, and to wear that crown of glory upon their heads, which would command the respect of all around them. And for the young in our group, I pray that these words would also be burned deeply into their consciences as well, and that even now, regardless of age, they would make these the goals to which they aspire for your glory's sake and for the testimony of your church in a very dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.